0: Before we start today's episode, a few words about this week's sponsor, Ireland's premier literary journal Irish Pages, a journal of contemporary writing, and the Irish Pages Press. Founded in 2002 and edited by Chris Agee and Kathleen Jamie, Scotland's MACA or National Poet Laureate, Irish Pages combines a large general readership with outstanding writing from Ireland and overseas, featuring many of the same writers found in the pages of the LRB. Widely considered the Irish equivalent of Granter in England or the Paris Review in the United States, it offers an unrivaled window on the literary and cultural life of these islands and further afield. Late 2018 saw the formal launch of the Irish Pages Press, an annual programme of major book publishing. The press flows from the outstanding standards of the journal in an age of media noise and publishing hyperbole, literary content and production values of exceptional quality. Irish Pages Press was awarded the British Book Award Small Press of the Year 2022, Ireland of Ireland. You can subscribe to Irish Pages on its brand new website and buy back issues or any of their outstanding titles from Ireland, Scotland and England. Ideal Christmas gifts include the celebrated hardback reprint, Irish Pages, the classic Heaney issue, and an elegant week-to-view diary, the 2024 Irish Pages Literary Diary. Listen to the Irish Pages podcast and order now at www.irishpages.org. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. This week I'm joined by Daisy Hay, a professor of English literature and life writing at Exeter University, whose books include Young Romantics, Mr and Mrs Disraeli, and most recently Dinner with Joseph Johnson, Books and Friendship in a Revolutionary Age. She has a piece in the latest issue of the LRB on the story behind the making of the OED. It's a review of the dictionary people, the unsung heroes who created the Oxford English Dictionary by Sarah Ogilvie. Hello Daisy and thank you very much for talking with me today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So the Oxford English Dictionary, the OED, is one of those things that it's possible if you don't really think about it, to imagine it's always existed somehow. But of course it hasn't. The first edition was created from scratch over many decades by a vast number of people, mostly in the second half of the 19th century and mostly under the editorship of James Murray. So how did it come about and how did Murray come to take charge of the project?
1: It has its roots earlier in the enterprises of an organisation called the Philological Society, who decided somewhere in the 1850s that Britain needed its own national dictionary to rival the dictionary projects emerging out of mainland Europe, where the lexicographers were generally more advanced than those in Britain. Of course, Britain had a dictionary. Britain had Samuel Johnson. But there was a general feeling that in terms of dictionary science, Britain was lagging behind. So a group of worthies came together via the Philological Society, and the plan for the OED was really born out of that. And James Murray wasn't involved at the very beginning, but took on when the took it on after the first editor, Frederick Furnival, needed to hand over, hand over the reins. So it had a slow start, but at the time that the method that the dictionary people described really became established, it had been going for about 20, 30 years, but it was beginning to be established.
0: It became certainly a much more professional and also more of a group enterprise than Johnson's dictionary. How did the development of the OED differ from the way Samuel Johnson had made his dictionary more than 100 years earlier?
1: So the thing about Johnson is that that model that you don't try and prescribe how language should be used, but you catch it In the act of being made by tracing it through quotation, through literature, through text. That was something which Johnson offered a a great model for. But you're right. This idea of a sort of semi-professionalized dictionary, which would, uh, which would lay down principles for collection and curation of the language was distinctive. Although I think one of the things which I found surprising and glorious, actually, in reading Sarah Ogilvie's book, was the ways in which it wasn't very professional, the ways in which people came from all walks of life, the ways in which that Murray and his assistants worked, first of all, in a school where he was a teacher and then in a shed. So there are all sorts of, about, all sorts of things about it which were unexpected, given we might think of it as a kind of grand, stable Victorian project.
0: The previous editor, Furnival, had to hand it over to Murray. And is that because it, he, he wasn't really getting anywhere? Or was there? The
1: project had definitely run into the ground. And the, when the paperwork arrived with Murray, what he had was reams of sort of misfiled quotations and these sacks and sacks of paper, which included apparently several dead rats and the sort of dust and debris of this failed enterprise or an enterprise which just had never got off the ground. So there was this huge job to be done in the first year that Murray was at the helm in sorting through the the layers of material that had already been gathered, but not really sorted
0: you mentioned already that he he worked in a in a, in a shed, a corrugated iron shed, which was known rather grandly as the scriptorium, and obviously he had editorial help there but the the unsung heroes of Sarah Ogilvie's title are these people known as readers or, or volunteers who who sent in instances and examples of, of words in need of definition so that, yeah these unsung heroes how how were they recruited and who were they
1: that's right and i i guess that that story that the oed was put together by people who filled and slipped is probably quite well known but what sarah ogilvy has done is work out who they were uh they were recruited first of all through advertisements placed in newspapers in britain and america by library societies and learning societies And they really did come from all over the Anglophone world. And the premise of the dictionary people is that when she was working for the OED as a lexicographer shortly before she left, Sarah Ogilvie found the address book that Murray had used to keep a note of all the contributors in a, in a basement in one of those kind of moments of archival treasure finding. And she's, she's used it as her source text. And what she's discovered was, is that these people, these readers, really did come from an astonishingly broad number of different kinds of backgrounds. They weren't all lawyers and, and clerics yeah, idling away gentlemen like ours. They really were a very varied group. And that I think for me was a great revelation of reading both her book and then learning more about the dictionary.
0: I mean, you talk about some of the more colorful characters. I don't know what the right word is really to determined um, that who, who contributed. But, um, I mean, were there there any people who particularly appealed to you as characters, as it were, when when reading the book?
1: Some who I talked about in the piece. There was an extraordinary woman called Mary Pringle who clearly appeared on the outside to be a perfectly ordinary Victorian wife and mother, but who every morning, when she, once she'd waved her husband off to his work at the war office, would go outside to measure the rain that had fallen so that she could keep her meteorological records and then would go and read all day for the dictionary and I definitely was particularly drawn to the sheer number of clever women who clearly found reading for the dictionary to be the most unbelievably restorative outlet in lives which otherwise were totally stifling actually of any kind of intellectual enterprise There was a young woman called Elsie Taylor who would go and volunteer down at the docks all day and then read anecdotes of William Pitt in the evening for the dictionary And you just have this sense of a mind desperate to be nourished and fulfilled in a way which has structure in the kind of way that as writers and as scholars we might take for granted, but which for her, the dictionary licensed because it was meaningful, purposeful work. It wasn't just reading for pleasure or for luxury. So I was very, very struck by the sheer number of women who found the model of the dictionary allowed a kind of Entry to a world of letters, in which they could also dictate their own reading, because that was one of the other things about Murray. He didn't tell people what to read. So in some ways, the choice of words and the choice of material is quite haphazard, and that can could, could cause them some problems when they just were not enough people reading for words like the, for example. Um, but just very striking that his readers really were allowed to follow their own noses. So. You can imagine the kind of vistas that opened up, for, particularly for women who otherwise had no institutional way that their reading would be recognised. There were lots of stories like that in this book, and I found them really moving.
0: And how did they get hold of the reading material? Did Murray and his assistants, did they send books out to people that they asked for, or would they go to, I don't know, if there was a lending library, or how, how would they get the books? I
1: think a mix. I think a mix. Murray clearly would send books out if people didn't have them, particularly if he needed particular volumes read, he would make requests. I guess someone like Elsie Taylor would also be reading in her father's collection, that it licences access to books which might be in the house, but not necessarily for particular constituencies in that house. But yes, lots of readers who spent hours in the British Museum or in equal in, in libraries and learning society libraries all over America, all over Britain. So a real mix, but it's certainly the case that you didn't have to have books to take part in this project.
0: Did they have any form of reward? I mean, presumably they were volunteers, they weren't paid?
1: They weren't paid. And in fact, there's one story in the book of Eleanor Marks, who was desperate to earn some money by reading for the dictionary. And A, didn't do it very well, And B was, and there was no, there was no mechanism for her to be paid. That was not the model. They were acknowledged, but there is a moment towards the end of the book. Possibly I'm skipping forward too much here, but during the grand dinner to mark the publicate, the final publication in in 1928 of the complete first edition, most of the readers weren't there. No women could be there because it was held at Goldsmith Hall, who didn't allow women. But most of them would have had to listen in on the wireless. So there is a sort of strange dichotomy throughout this project between the people who made it and its sort of institutional status. And that came up again and again and again. And one of the things I found really revealing is that sense of how unstable a project this was actually for the first decades of its development. We might think of it as being... Like, you know, kind of another great Victorian infrastructure project, but actually, it really wasn't um, a bit like Leslie Stevens' OEM, Nick Dick, sorry, a bit like Leslie Stevens' Dictionary of National Biography, really the work of you know, a passion project for a group of individuals. And it would be a real mistake, I think, to see it as somehow a product of the Victorian state or of Oxford University Press with all its might just because of its name.
0: James Murray himself a Point sort of embodied that, didn't he? Sort of that straddling of different worlds. And he may have become one, but at the beginning, certainly he wasn't an establishment figure.
1: Not at all, no. I mean, he, he, was a, he was a Scot, a non-conformist Scot, left school at 14. No real formal education after that, but clearly extraordinarily well read. But he had to fight for years for acceptance in Oxford. I mean, he didn't get fellowship at Oxford College for decades. Uh, he was excluded from Oxford University life you know, and ba- on the Banbury Road in his iron shed in the scriptorium with his assistants. Big fights with the delegates of Oxford University Press about the words which were suitable for inclusion, the words which weren't, about budget overruns. So this is a project made by those crowdsourced autodidacts, but it's sort of led by an autodidact too. And I think Murray was drawn to outsiders. He was drawn to people who fell between the cracks of institutional Victorian Britain. Those are certainly the places where he found his most acute readers, I think. And again, there's a story, and amongst the story of words, there's a story about human beings there and finding people who are like you or who have experiences which are similar to yours. And that's definitely a thing which comes through this book again and again.
0: Although well, some of the outsiders who he who contributed were very much not like many other people. I mean, there's the famous Dr. William Chester Minor, who's the sort of the grisly subject of uh, Simon Winchester's book, The Surgeon of Crowthorne, who contributed more than 60,000 slips from his cell in Broadmoor.
1: There certainly is, yes. And then who mutilated himself with the knife he'd been given to cut open the pages of books in a rather sensational manner. But there were lots of people... Sarah Ogilvie says she thinks that three murderers contributed to the OED one of whom was probably guilty of cannibalism in extremis on, a, on an expedition. But there was also a young man called Eustace Bright who comes up in a chapter called J for Junkie, who was a former pupil of Murray's at Mill Hill, who trained as a doctor and graduated and all seemed very promising, but who began to experiment disastrously with chloroform and then with cocaine, both of which he was able to access through his work at the hospital and through pharmacies, both, of course, legal drugs in the 1880s and early 1890s. And he was found dead in a loo at a railway station in the early 1890s, cutting off a career which had both been very promising and in which he had sent Murray, his old teacher, medical words for the dictionary. So a real sense that, particularly for some of these people for whom the dictionary offered an outlet, a way of sort of breathing through words of being able to read, these were also lives which were incredibly difficult. One contributor who went sent in an asylum because of overwork. Another who was described in the census as a lunatic and an imbecile. Who contributed the most extraordinarily nuanced definitions and readings of words to do with the brain and aphasia. So a real, a, a, a real, uh, sorry, so a real ma- meeting of People who were in some way marginalised and vulnerable, for so whom therefore the dictionary offered much, but also whose lives were inherently quite risky as well.
0: And there's questions of the of the medical words and and excluded words they they come together. That you mentioned in your piece that appendicitis was famously not included in the volume of the first edition of the OED.
1: Absolutely, which became a real problem because when Edward the Seventh when then went down with appendicitis and the coronation had to be postponed the absence became rather noticeable. There's another very famous story that uh Murray wrote the entry for Arrival just after his daughter, Rothfuss, had been born while sitting at, at his wife's bedside. And this is a story which appears in in Sarah Ogilby's book, which has appeared before. But he says Arrival, for example, of a new daughter. So that sense of the world of the body and the world of... Words, meeting, is something you find again and again.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. That the um, the first thing that many children do when they first get hands on a dictionary is to is to look up the rude words. Yeah, see if they're there. Um, what I mean, what was the what was the policy on swearing in the in the dictionary?
1: It was pretty fraught. Their completeness had its limits. Some words just didn't make it in. Uh, one contributor submitted a definition for the word condom, but in an envelope, sealed, so that it wouldn't pollute the the minds and morals of the scriptorian staff. And in fact, it was ultimately omitted. But this was a point of real friction, as were words which were seen by the delegates of Oxford University Press to be un-English. So loan words from, from other Englishes were really frowned upon. But there, Murray was much more demanding in terms of their inclusion. He resisted censorship, but he was a, a man in the 1880s and 1890s producing a great work for Oxford University Press, and there were limits to the completeness that that could allow.
0: So w- what was the process by which a word sort of published in an obscure, I don't know, 17th century text, for example, and then this text would be read by one of the, one of the readers who would think that's an interesting word or and then they'd write it on one of these little slips of paper i'm sort of <laughs> trying to imagine the process here maybe you could talk us through
1: yeah absolutely so it was surprisingly haphazard so for example one of murray's contributors was a was a man called frederick elworthy who was from a rich family of wool merchants and he contributed Lots and lots of words to do with farming and sheep farming, but also folklore, which he was particularly fascinated by. And there's no doubt that there are words in the OED which are there because of him and him alone and his particular interests. So, for example, pharmacy in terms of the use of potions in divination or witchcraft, a folklore sense of the word phallus uh, as a symbol of generative power. Lots of other definitions which really only came from him. And so, for example, aeromancy, which is the movement of air in folklore. And Murray, unusually for Ellsworthy, made exceptions in that he would use quotations from Ellsworthy's letters in which Ellsworthy would explain the significance of particular farming languages. So he is possibly an extreme example, although fascinating, because it really shows the extent to which it was the language of the people who made the dictionary, which got into the dictionary. More broadly, though, contributors reading, say, anecdotes of William Pitt, were told to read looking for words which struck them as rare, obsolete, new, peculiar, or used in a peculiar way, and to make a note of those readings. So they would do that. So for example, One reader of Austin, Austin attracted some really wonderful women readers who were very acute, noted that she used the word spoilt to describe a spoilt child rather than spoilt food or spoilt baking or a spoilt afternoon. And so submitted that. And then that would be taken by the sub editors in the scriptorium and put together in bundles with other uses of the word spoilt. And then Used to derive a submeaning or a subsense to do as a child, which would then be credited to Austin as the first usage, and then if other subsequent usages were to be found, they would be they would accrete on that original usage. So, one of the things which is wonderful about this book is that because Sarah Ogilvie is a lexicographer herself, she really understands the kind of nuances of meaning that contribute to a, a well-written definition. It wouldn't have occurred to me before reading this book that spoilt might have a different nuance in relation to a child than to a cake which had been overbaked. But of course it does when you think about it. And it's also part of how that particular word evolves. So that's the process which happened again and again. And then the readers would read, the sub-editors would bundle, and then a kind of specialist group of volunteers would sort of sort through the bundles for Murray and for the definition writers in the scriptorium.
0: And was it published in order from sort of A to Z, as it were? I mean, did Volume 1, beginning with Aardvark, as it were, come out first, and the last one in 1928 was...
1: Exactly, and which is why A, missing appendicitis, was a bit of an issue in 1902, 1903, because you know, that, that, was, that that was that was acute. But of course, definitions weren't put together in order. So the scriptorium team would be working on A, for example, but definitions would be coming in all the time for other languages. So there's a kind of heroic quality to the idea of having to keep up with continuous production while also dealing with the influx of information from other the things you're not currently trying to publish and that there is just a sort of thing about this whole project which is a bit giddy in terms of the number of contributors the number of slips the number of definitions the number of books read the degrees of budget overrun it is a heroic endeavor whichever way you look at it
0: i mean the world had changed a huge amount in those 70 years and the language had changed and they're so I mean, I don't know how you'd measure this without re- reading it from start to finish historically but is the way can you see that those changes between the first volume and the last volume it does the first volume you can tell it's published in the 1870s and the last one you can tell it's published in the 1920s is that difference there
1: So that I'm really not sure about, because in some ways, in fact, Sarah Ogilvie's preoccupation is less the evolving story of the dictionary than the dictionary is a kind of hub wheel or a spoke from which the spokes of its contributors go off. But it is clear that everyone involved is very aware of the fact that this is a project which is sort of building in its own redundancy all the time, that it can never outrun itself. and. So, you know, right now, the OED lexicographers are working on the third edition, which is why we get that annual parlour game of the words which are in and the words which are out. But of course, it has been rendered obsolete even in the act of its making. There was a slight narrative in 20th century histories of the dictionary that the mid 20th century editors of the second edition, then the third edition, were sort of heroic decolonisers of an imperial Victorian project. And I'm just not sure that's quite right, because actually there is a sense of language coming from all over the Anglophone world, and that being the language, not just as the people who are contributing it, but language which has been heard and in some cases appropriated by those who are submitting it on their behalf from the beginning. So I think there is a kind of more nuanced story emerges when you look at the contributors. So abolitionists in Philadelphia, for example, submitting the definitions for words like atrocity and abolition. Now, clearly, that abolitionist was not an enslaved person herself. Just, the language of slavery is not her language. And it would be a mistake to push the sense that this is a democratizing project too far. But nevertheless, there is a real effort from some of the contributors to tell a story about the world that the English language describes not after the event but in the moment and that was new material for me definitely.
0: And the ever-evolving third edition as you describe it that's presumably never going to be printed is it I mean it's an ongoing online project or is it yeah?
1: That's my understanding I can't be completely sure about that, but that's my understanding. And that's where Sarah Ogilvie worked. And there are some wonderful moments, less in fact in the dictionary of people, but things she described earlier about her experience of arriving from the more laid back world of Australian dictionary making to find an environment in Oxford where total silence was the rule, to the extent that if you wanted to have a conversation with a colleague, you either went into a glass booth or sent them an email. And where you certainly didn't write definitions with your shoes off, as you've been used to doing in Australia. And one of the things I liked a lot about this book is that although it's about the people of the dictionary, it is by a dictionary person. And Ogilvy's background is both in lexicography and in computer science and in large data sets. So she brings to her account of these contributors a kind of sensibility around network analysis. So she's very interested in how different contributors connect to each other. So there's a contributor for example called Alexander John Ellis who she describes as a super connector because he was in all the societies and in all the clubs and he wrote hundreds of letters. There's one letter to Murray he writes where he says, this is my tenth letter presumably of the morning. So because he was so connected he brought lots of other people including Frederick Ellsworth, the, the wool the, the wool and the, the, um, the heir to the wool wealth into Murray's orbit. So this sense of a network of contributors, which which moves in and out from each other, which is is really really rich, and it takes a certain different kind of bio, biographer sensibility, I think, to piece this story together like that, and it makes it a really original book, actually.
0: Do you get the sense that she feels a connection herself to these other people through working on the dictionary? I mean, the project she worked on is in some sense the same project that the people she writes about were working on.
1: I think so, yes. And towards the end of the book, she describes flying to back to Australia to meet a, a contributor called Mr Collier, who sent in thousands of entries from the Brisbane Courier Mail, which has an unexpectedly large presence in the OED and has some wonderful definitions, including one I remember for sea changer, which is someone who has a change of life midway through, who makes a, 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 also sickie, as in to pull a sickie. And she describes flying to Brisbane to meet him and wanting to bring him back to Oxford so that his contribution can be honoured, and him saying under no circumstances the idea of the, the number of Brisbane courier males waiting for him on his return would be too much. A real definition for her, I think, of both unsung hero, but also of a lineage of contributors, which is active and which goes on.
0: So, this system that was set up in the nineteenth century of volunteer readers, contributors. To the, I mean, that's still going on. It still is a crowdsourcing project. And and can anyone join in? or wonder, Can we? Can listeners sort of go to the OED website? And
1: my understanding is that you can, but it's no longer its dominant mode of information collection. So I think it does speak to that kind of moment of, I guess, a kind of mass involvement in intellectual culture, which we think of as being possibly quite distinctive in the 19th century. I mean, the dictionary starts just as mass education is beginning to be rolled out in Britain. That sense of a kind of both a very stratified but also quite permissive intellectual culture, by which I mean only that it is accessible to anyone who can read. You know, there are some very famous autodidacts in 19th century Britain. It it definitely has, it definitely tells a story about the moment of its origins. And I was trying to think about what do all these stories in this book amount to? They're obviously fascinating on their own terms. I think what they amount to is a kind of history of that period, just seen by tracing the byways and the diversions as lived by people who chose to sort of self-select into this group of readers. So it's a kind of social history, but it's social history from the people rather than from a set of hypotheses. And so what it produces is some really unexpected meetings of, of persons. So I was very interested to see Leslie Stephen here, but also that Catherine Bradley and Edith Cooper, who we know better as Michael Field, who are the aunt and niece writer pair who also are lovers who publish who friends with Browning and who publish work which gets a kind of huge reading. Uh, they submit work by, they submit quotations from Browning and from Ruskin. So really interesting to see how more familiar stories slot into the story of the OED too.
0: And would people try and submit their own poems as it were, kind of slip them in, try and get their moment of fame by having their name next to a quotation in the? Dictionary, or were they more scrupulous than that?
1: I didn't come across much of that. So Frederick Earworth, gets in in his letters, but that is quite rare. At one point, Murray writes to George Eliot to ask her to clarify how she's used particular meaning. And there's a, a I, I can't, I don't have the letter in front of me, but there is a very slight element of fan fangirling <laughs> from Murray as he writes to George Eliot, who he clearly respects hugely, asking very technical questions about her use of particular words and she's obviously pleased to be included it's very touching to see that Margaret Murray who is a young woman in India submits words which are Anglo-Indian in later life became an archaeologist and her archaeological writings get quoted in the dictionary so there's a nice symmetry there but I didn't find examples of readers submitting their own work and
0: things like the complete works of Shakespeare, for example, did the amateurs get to read those or were, they, were Chaucer and Shakespeare sent out to specialists?
1: Absolutely. So there are definitely subsets of contributors who are tasked with a particular author. So the example that that Ogilvy gives is for Austen, who is read very seriously by about six women. And that, that, that pattern where particular authors ha- are read in particular ways is definitely something that you see. Of course, with Shakespeare, it is, the numbers are much larger. But then there are works which clearly are just passion projects for particular readers, which otherwise might just never have gotten at all. And I guess you can say, well, the results must necessarily be incomplete, but in some ways they are, it's as complete a statement of the language as encoded in the canon, or in every work ever published in English, as you can possibly get. There is no, any version of completeness over and above that it's going to be a chimera isn't it so in some ways Murray had to be at peace with the fact that it was a partial system from the beginning
0: yeah I, re- I remember as a as an undergraduate we were um sent to look up words in the dictionary to trace their their history through through time and one of the ones that we were told to look at was soon which once meant now but of course it sort of it slips. And even though I suppose the word now is now slipping, that people can say, I'll do it now, meaning I'll I'll do it in a little while. And that sort of procrastination. I don't know, there seems something very human about that and also about I don't know, about the way the dictionary was made, except they did they did get it done and it is still slightly astonishing to
1: And I I found myself thinking when I was working on the piece about about its technology, so when I was at school, I went to school every day past the post box on the Banbury Road that had been put there by the Royal Mail to enable this huge amount of correspondence. And then when I went to university, there was great excitement because the OED became available on CD-ROM. So you could go to the college library and and, and put in the CD-ROM and consult the OED without having to drag out the huge volumes. And now, of course, anyone with a login or an institutional login, in fact, anyone with Anyone without a login can search for a word online, although you do need a login to get the more detailed, to get the quotations. So the way in which we read the dictionary has changed so dramatically over even the last 25 years. And I guess for those who are working on the third edition, keeping up not just with the words, but with the technology in which it will be made is, is an enormous project. And one of the things that Sarah Ogilvy talks about is the fact that now it's put together as we read it. So the way that the pages on the online edition are constructed are, mean that the lexicographers can feed into them live rather than waiting for the next iteration to be, um, to be published. So we don't have to wait for the third edition to be published for the definitions which are online now to be updated. So there's a sense of the project as a kind of endlessly mutable form, which if you're interested in book history is really, really fascinating.
0: Yeah, and it's true to the nature of language as well, isn't it? That that, that the, I mean, as you, you said earlier, that the the idea that all you can do in a dictionary you take as a, a snapshot or a very long exposure in in terms of the OED of the language as it is, or as it has changed over time and as it has got to now, but recognising that it will continue to change after this, your dictionary has been published, but now. It's almost as if the dictionary has, has even escaped that having to be a snapshot, and it can continue to evolve and grow almost in real time with the language, as with those words, as you say, that get put in every year, and it's the kind of what are the words of the year.
1: That's right. It's no longer it's no longer in aspect hmm. representative of a particular moment, but it is sort of an ever evolving form. One of the things I was thinking about as I was trying to think about its changes, its formal changes of. A moment from my own research when the philosopher and chemist Joseph Priestley tells his publisher Joseph Johnson that or in fact tells his readership that he, if his book is out of date in a few years because science has evolved that's fine the readers can just come back and get a free copy of the next edition which has you know a breathtakingly little respect for the economics of his poor bookseller but that sense of a book as an evolving flexible mutable form is definitely something which the OED is truly representative of. So it'd be really, really interesting to see what happens to it. But, 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 the other, but the counter to that is that the readers who Murray employed, who, the, the, the readers, the unsung heroes, the dictionary people, their work is still there. So this is a geological project with layering. And that work that the readers did, you know, Elsie Taylor, Eustace Bright, Alexander John Ellis, Frederick Ellsworthy, Mary Pringle, they all did in the 1817 and 80s. That remains as part of the substructure of the dictionary as it is published now. So the definition for pennants has a quotation from a sweet jar in 1887. And I went and checked and it's still there. You know, if you go into the OED.com now, it's still right there. So that technological innovation doesn't erase the work that Murray and his readers did.
0: Daisy Hape, thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You can read Daisy Hayes' piece in the latest issue of the LRB, dated the 19th of October, along with Stefan Colini on Why We Pay Tax, Cast Your Body on the US Census, Tom Crewe on Charles Lamb, and a piece by me on Mick Herron's Slough House Thrillers. Subscribers to the paper can read all that and more from the current issue and from the archive of everything the LRB has ever published since 1979. To subscribe, if you don't already, go to lrb.me forward slash subscribe or click in the link in the podcast description. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes and Zoe Kilborn. The music is by Kieran Brunt. I'm Thomas Jones. Thank you
1: for listening.